0: This is a WTOP original podcast.
1: From Podcast One.
2: Previously on Colors. We continue with Shonda Buchanan on the subject of backlash.
0: I almost have this feeling that you are not allowed. You're not allowed to backlash. You're not allowed because we have gained this office and then to regroup so that you can undermine us. I have started confronting backlash and uh comments or um you know people who would say say certain things that are uh, detrimental emotionally physically spiritually financially to me
2: i address it immediately
1: coming up in this episode of colors
2: america has spoken it wants diversity equity, inclusion, and belonging, and some key government agencies and organizations are listening.
0: My office has taken what was handed to us um, earlier this year and strengthened it, put more concrete measures of
2: effectiveness in. Ambassador Gina Amber Crombie Winstanley. She's the State Department's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. But we
0: have to go even further and we have probably a hundred or so recommendations that are really going to be difficult and complex. Uh, things that are going to break some China, that are going to remove or shift some power dynamics that are currently in place. but. Are hindering progress as they currently are constructed.
1: That's coming up in this
2: episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Justice. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here.
1: From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.
2: Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys.
0: I'm Christopher Cruz. I'm white,
2: 62, and I live in the D.C. area. Julie Pham, Vietnamese, American, born in Vietnam, living in Seattle. Malcolm Sherrod. I'm a black American from South Florida. Tyrese Coleman, black
0: woman from Brown Grove in Ashland, Virginia.
2: I'm JJ Green, I'm black, and this is Colors. Since the killing of George Floyd last year, organizations across the country have been deeply involved in efforts right. to develop diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging programs. We've heard a lot from public companies and, and organizations, but we haven't heard a whole lot from the U.S. government. Perhaps leading that effort has been the State Department. And they've appointed someone to run their operation, Gina Ambercrombie with Stanley. She's the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. She's a 30-year diplomat. She began her former work in teaching and leadership development as the chairwoman for the Middle East Area Studies Program at the prestigious Foreign Service Institute, where U.S. diplomats are trained. She's done a lot more than that. She's served in Baghdad, Jakarta, and Cairo before taking on the position of special assistant to the Secretary of State for the Middle East and Africa. In fact, she's the Department of State's meritorious and superior honor awards, including for acts of courage during an attack on the U.S. Consulate General in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, on December 6, 2004. By Al Qaeda terrorists. We don't know what those acts of courage are, but I can pretty much assure you, you don't get that award for just showing up to work. Ambassador, we are really excited to have you here today. You are such an impressive figure. Just, you know, your accomplishments in your life Uh, And the things that you've done outside of the State Department, before the State Department, and I'm certainly sure after the State Department, are going to be equally as impressive. But thank you for doing this, joining us today on the Colors podcast, because we want to talk to you about some very important activities that are taking place at the State Department that you're running right now. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, sir. Delighted to be here. First question for you, Ambassador, is tell us about the State Department's diversity, equity, and inclusion goals.
0: Well, the State Department has had a long history of having bright young people join us, but not not the range of people who truly reflect and can accurately represent the American people. So as the president has said, as the secretary of state has said, we are looking for an institution that looks like America. So that's that's number one. It's simple. It's visual. It's immediately understandable. But obviously, diversity and inclusion and accessibility go beyond visible minorities. It does include diversity of experience and expertise, as well as diversity of identity. We are trying to get the absolute best people at the table to solve these increasing challenges that we're facing in the 21st century. And we recognize that we've got to have a wider array of ways of thinking about what solutions, what success looks like. And that means we've got to have a wider array of backgrounds and lived experiences at the table to bring their brilliance to bear.
2: You are a woman of color and you mentioned something early on in your remarks about the State Department typically being attractive to and attracting young white people. You're a woman of color. What got you interested or how did you uh, find yourself to the State Department?
0: I had been a Peace Corps volunteer, and while I was a volunteer, met some U.S. diplomats and realized that what we were trying to achieve, in short, making friends for America, um, was what diplomacy was all about. You know, and its, if you distill it down to the very basic thing, we are trying to make friends for the United States. Um, I certainly was... Raised, I had a, a father who raised all of us to think that there was no one brighter, smarter, or more capable than we, and to go out into the world with that certainty. Uh, so seeing the State Department, learning about a life of diplomacy, I, I did not hesitate to think that that could be a life where I could succeed and be happy.
2: So, well, that's really, that's, that really just kind of moves right into what I wanted to ask you about next. Being happy. Were there moments in your career when you longed for and wondered why the heck isn't there something that makes this a more equal, welcoming place? Um You know, did you wonder where is DEI when you need it? <laughs> I mean, before this all <laughs> started, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, that is a really thoughtful question. I will tell you, which is one of the reasons why I'm in this business, is that in spite of the challenges that I have had in my career, and certainly there have been many, that 95 or higher percent of the time I have joyfully walked through the front doors of the embassy or the Department of State to come to work. This has been a joy almost every single day, or certainly every day there are times of joy in my work, in what I was working to accomplish, in having colleagues who were as committed to public service as I, it has been a joyful experience. Have there been challenges and frustrations, moments of rage, quite frankly, and I find rage a very useful emotion from time to time. (laughs) Absolutely. But never did I think, I cannot best this. I cannot find an ally and make this better, not only for myself, but for those who come behind me. I know in spite of the joy that I've had, in spite of the accomplishment I've had, that there are too many people who look like me, who may think like me or share my gender or my political outlook for that matter, who have not had as happy as an experience as I. And I know this organization that I love can do better can do better. And that is what I've always wanted to be a part of.
2: Yeah, we can do better. What uh, What experiences during the course of your time leading up to um, the State Department, joining the State Department, and in, in even after, what experiences in your life have prepared you for this job today?
0: Yeah. Probably learning pretty early on to be very comfortable being a minority in the room, being the only one in the room. You know, you may notice it as you walk in and then you put it aside somewhere and and go on and and do you as it were.
2: Yeah, I have noticed that a few times in my own career.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I bet you have. Yes. I bet you have. And so, you know, you can't dwell on that. You can't second guess yourself. You can't worry about what other people are thinking. You have to do you. Um, I would say that even as I was growing up in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, but. You know, continued as a university student in Washington D.C., um, continued as a peace corps volunteer, continued as a diplomat. That that has been my life. And although there are times when I haven't been the only one in the room, or indeed where most of the people in the room were brown, so again, it it's delightful to have that recognition, or that most of the people in the room. Were women delightful to have that reckon, recognition, and then just the same, you got to set it aside and do you. So I'd say those two things: studying abroad, getting comfortable with other cultures, and I think most African Americans, as most women, and I, I got kind of spanked on this. I made this statement earlier uh, in my tenure here, but I I, I stand by it. As a minority, as a woman in this country, you do not operate from a position of power, of being in the majority, of having um, unquestioned, thoughtless acceptance. You cannot assume that people are going to give you the benefit of the doubt or expect success from you. So you have got to navigate in that space, navigate in different cultures, even within your own country. And therefore you are well-prepared to do the same overseas. I, I stand by that statement. I know it makes some people uncomfortable, but I believe it is true.
2: I agree with you hundred percent. I mean, you can't be one thing over here and something else over there, you mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. you clearly get that. And throughout your career, you've demonstrated the ability to think critically and to think with depth throughout all of the things that, you know, you've been challenged with and tasked with, you know, from your days at, at GW or Johns, Johns Hopkins or Harvard or wherever. You know, um, mm-hmm. the point that we're getting at here is this is a brand new day. And it's not a day that we haven't seen before in this country. It's a day that we've, you know, we have a new, we have a new opportunity to, to define what we're able to do when we start looking at diversity, equity, inclusion, et cetera. So the State Department doing this is pretty remarkable, but it shouldn't be, because that's what the State Department should be about, as you said. So in doing what it is that you want to do, what are the lines of efforts, lines of effort or goals that are most important to you as Director?
0: Well, I think one of the most important ones, because it's been proven over and over again that it is effective. And as I mentioned earlier, while being a visible minority, having visible minorities in positions of leadership and power is it's necessary, but it's insufficient, but it's necessary because that's the quickest shorthand that communicates to everyone that people who are different are welcome. And so Having us look different is absolutely a priority Um, when we say we want to look like the America we represent, it means we've got to look different, but we cannot stop there. So we spend a lot of time and attention on accessibility issues. And certainly disability is not always uh, visible. There are a number of people who have invisible disabilities that we've got to get to accommodations uh, on, where we have laws and regulations that can help us increase the number of people with disabilities that we can bring into the state department and allow to serve the nation like every other employee. And we have to go the extra to, to use the regulations and laws that we have to, to imbue those with power and to increase those numbers. That that's a place that we can start. We want to increase transparency, a lot of what happens in many organizations, certainly in our own, is very opaque. You know, hiring decisions, promotion decisions, assignment decisions, they, they can be extremely opaque so that some people who have the end, who have the connection, know how to get where they want to go. And then the rest of us are left floundering. So transparency is a great leveler of the playing field. So we work a lot on that. Accountability is the most important thing from my perspective and the hardest nut to crack. Um, The laws as constructed are not very helpful. Uh, it, I, I, a lawyer, you know, observed to me that, that wicked smart people put the laws in place and they weren't necessarily put there to uh, change the status quo. So wicked smart people have to look at the law and help it work for where we know this organization and this nation needs to be.
2: So considering all of that, um accountability, engagement, and action seem to me to be the most compelling, or at least certainly the things that stand out to me about what you're doing. You need for people to be accountable. You need for them to engage, and you can't do any of that without taking some action. So what are some of the initiatives that are underway or being planned right now?
0: Well, one of the largest that we are uh, moving very quickly toward I hope in the next day or so, is to put out our preliminary um, diversity, inclusion, uh, equity, and accessibility strategic plan. We have a draft of it that my office has taken to the next level after the workforce worked on it in the previous administration. My office has taken what was handed to us um, earlier this year and strengthened it, put more concrete measures of effectiveness in. But we have to go even further. And we have probably a hundred or so recommendations that are really going to be difficult and complex. Uh, Things that are gonna break some China that are going to remove or shift some power dynamics that are currently in place, but are hindering progress as they currently are constructed. And so we have been reaching out to various aspects of our workforce our employee affinity groups, our employee organizations, uh, people in our um, Global Talent Management Bureau, our lawyers, uh, different regional bureaus, for us all to come together in various working groups to clothe these final 100 recommendations to really dig deep and see, can they be done? Can we find a way to put them in place in a way that is clear, accessible and effective for everyone. So that's the work we'll be doing between now and March when we put out our final strategic plan and then the workforce will march to that. So that's a very big thing. We've got some smaller things that we've done that make for a more transparent system and it's a little bit inside baseball because we are such a unique not only just civil service but we've got the foreign service which is a different hiring mechanism and we choose people and promote people in a way that is not the same as the civil service does which is what most foreign agencies sorry federal government agencies um, adhere to so we've got a lot of things that we're trying to uh, bring a spotlight to This is how it works. You know, now everybody's going to know who's on the committee that chooses ambassadors, who choose deputy chiefs of mission, you know, which is that, that penultimate position if you want to become an ambassador or a chief of mission. Um, how is that selection process working? We've, we've sent out instructions for our foreign service and our civil service to regularize how decisions are made that we don't want one person deciding, looking at a list of people just because they know so-and-so and and have worked with so-and-so before and like them, that no, that's not how you choose because that keeps it in a very small circle. You need a hiring panel. You need diversity on that panel. You need everybody to have the same interview Technique, whether it is in person or Zoom or by telephone, everybody should be asked the exact same questions. You should narrow the outside questions that, you know, make people familiar. Where'd you go to school? Where'd you grow up? Do you know so-and-so? Those questions should not be part of it. We don't talk about fit anymore. Or I'm trying to get us to stop talking about it because mm-hmm. fit is often a secret word that yep. talks about are you like us? Yes. Will we like you? Fit should be confined to, do you have the skills that this position requires? Are you filling a gap in the organization? That's what fit needs to be about.
2: Well, that is very comprehensive, uh, Madam Ambassador. I mean, even if it is just a, a little bit of what you've talked about, this kind of thing is exactly what Colors is about, breaking down the details of, um, the concepts. When we start yeah. looking at race, we start looking at all of the things that have historically been the foundations of, uh, of racism and, and the foundations of, of, of holding things that hold people back, things that separate and don't include people that push people aside. Those are some very key things. You, you said that they, these were some smaller things, but Back to the breaking the China piece, Um, that is a really remarkable statement. Um, And why do you think that's going to break China?
0: Because we haven't done it before. We have admired the problem of discrimination and lack of inclusivity for a long time. We've talked the talk, but we are now walking the talk we are walking the talk. So, you know, every change that we've already put in place is not welcomed by everybody because the former system certainly served some people and anyone who has been served by the previous situation here is not so eager for it to change. So we also have to work at bringing people along. And, you know, I put the question out there to you in case you've got some insight I can use because I still, I struggle with still the nomenclature to, I, you know, I was going to say to reassure my European American male colleagues. But in fact, I don't even know if reassure is the right word. It is a combination of making clear that in equity, inclusivity includes everyone, them included, That we are looking for a level playing field that as African-Americans and Hispanics and women and other minorities have said, don't choose us just because of our color or our gender, Mm -hmm. but choose us because we're the best one for the job, that we come with the skills that can be used effectively. We can be successful. Then then European Americans should feel the exact same way. Yes? Yes. Don't choose us because of our gender or the color of our skin, but because we're the best for this job. And that means leveling the playing field. But I'm I'm still, I don't have the magic words to get that nod in the audience when I'm talking about this. I don't have the magic words yet, but I'm working on it. I'm working on it because I know they're out there.
2: Well, I can tell you this, madam. Madam Ambassador, you know, I'm not sure why you're not getting the nod because it's not terribly complicated what you just said needs to happen. We all understand that racism is not a one race street. It is a street that all races participate in. All ethnicities have the propensity and the proclivity to engage in. No one race is a race of people that do this. And you can't put people in that box by saying if you're white, you do this or if you're black, you do that. I have experienced yeah. racism from all races that I've encountered at at certain times in my life. And my message, and I think the message of this program and certainly the message I'm hearing coming from you, is that it's not OK. It doesn't matter who you are or what color you are or where you're going, what you're doing or how you want to do it. You can't do any of that. You can't be racist. You can't be uh, exclusive and you can't um, you can't put people aside and, and 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 that means all all people of all races are essentially welcome in the process and that's precisely what I hear you're talking about doing there at state department. So let me ask you this question. You know, in order to do what I found in order to do it DEI diversity equity and inclusion and we have an an extra an extra piece here. We call it belonging. Um, it's impossible to it's possible to be included in something, but you may not feel like you belong just because you've been included. So the yeah the, I get you yeah. So one of the things that I've kind of thought about is what is it what what's necessary to make to give people the the interest in owning it. If you want if you want this to work it's gotta be owned. The people who it's built for have to own it and engage in it, thus feeling like they belong. What's your view on how that should happen?
0: I believe that we will make progress soon on that ownership piece. Uh, Before I joined the administration, before I rejoined the government, I have been very clear in my view that, as is apparent in the private sector, in any facet of life, in any relationship, personal or professional, if you value something, then you measure it. You judge people on it. And therefore, this diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility piece, we have to be judged on how well we do it. So we're at, you know, if you have a, a A dashboard of maturity on DEIA programs, and I've seen different iterations of these, and and some of them are very useful indeed. The the understanding that DEIA is important is is one level that you can reach on a maturity graph. Um, But the other level of it is, does it get measured as you are Pursuing your career and that is an important step that the Department of State is ready to make and that is when we measure or review people for leadership positions when we review people for promotion. We've always talked about the need for strong leadership compassionate leadership. At times, we've talked about the need for strong management skills. We've talked about the need for strong communication skills. We're diplomats. Our, our communication skills are what make us effective or not effective. We've talked about interpersonal skills and subject matter expertise. Do you know about the country you are representing? Do you know about the country you are representing America Two, do you understand the politics and the culture and the government function and all the other things that help give us insight and understanding into that nation or into that organization in case it's an international organization? But we also have to ask, are you a good supporter, advocate for, and moving forward, on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. And we are going to measure that in the way that we all have to put down concrete examples of our successful leadership, of our strong substantive knowledge, of our ability to communicate. We are also preparing to say, to require that we put down concrete examples of how we forward DEIA. And the point of this, the purpose of this, is that everybody in this organization needs to take ownership of it. Right now, as in many organizations, it falls on the shoulders of those who already carry the burden, mm-hmm. which is not fair, and I have no interest in perpetuating. It should not be Women and minorities who are personing the Diversity and Inclusion Council or the employee affinity groups or who are setting up talks on this, that, or the other to explain ourselves to other people. That means we carry the burden of all the challenges of getting to belonging, and we carry the burden of doing the work. I've often talked about being on a panel or refusing to do DEIA panels. I refuse to do them if there are only brown people on the panel. And I say, where are the white people? Mm -hmm. This may be our burden, but it is your problem. And we need everybody to take ownership of it. So that is a direction that we are moving into because once you're measured on it, then Everybody is going to have an equal desire to be able to put down concrete examples of what they have done to forward DEIA, not just the people who are burdened by the lack thereof.
2: You know, one of the things you've done throughout your career, based on what your your, 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 your colleagues and certainly your appointment to this position, this, this, this post, And just the things that you've done in your lifetime, you've just, you've always excelled and gone above and beyond. And you've just done it again. There were four questions here I was going to ask you, but you've answered all four of them at once. And I'm assuming it's because you knew they were coming.
0: Uh, No, I just started
2: answering your questions. So so I gave you a full answer. So so we're running out of time. I mean, I wish we had more, but I'm not going to. Uh, belabor that point. Maybe uh, we can establish another opportunity. But I want to combine two things and ask you, um, how are you selling this? I know you have this uh, at the State Department. I spoke with Bill Russo not too long ago about the Hometown Diplomats program. And I'm so grateful you're talking to us, um, Uh a, quote, local radio station, although we're located in the nation's capital with several million people listening to us in several states. uh, Including me. Yes. (laughs) yes <laughs> thank you and this podcast which obviously is out there in in the universe of the internet with a lot more people that are going to hear it but um the hometown diplomats program is designed as to to make Americans familiar with folks from the state department and what you're doing and why you do what you do how are you selling this to Americans and at the same time what are your what are your global partners to think uh what's the message to them uh for uh, about this program yeah
0: well, I'd say selling it to America, frankly, we are trying to step up to the demands of America. America has told us they want us to do better. And again, equity is for everyone. I don't care what your background is. And the point you made earlier about you know, racism or isms that, can, that are by everyone, it is that example, of course, is microaggressions. And I, I gave a talk when I was working for the campaign on microaggressions, and I opened the talk to talk about the latest one I did. And I think about these issues, I work hard to do well by everyone. And I microaggressed against someone and had to take ownership of it and apologize for it and learn from it. And so there should be no ego, no, no defensiveness about it because we can all mess up and therefore all of us. Um, We're trying to meet the demand of the American people. So when I talk about this, I talk about it in those terms that we are trying finally, as I said, to to walk the talk. And that goes for our international partners as well. We have talked a good game for many, many years, and we have to use this as a lens to carry out our foreign policy as well, to take a hard look at are we reaching Underserved populations overseas or minority populations overseas in our programming, in our exchange programs, in who we invite and who we interact with as diplomats. You know, you could easily hang out with the very cream of the crop of society, but we want to get with the hoi polloi as well, the everyday people as well, because you can't just talk to one level of society. So we are making concerted efforts to bring this lens to our foreign policy. We've already sent out instructions and received feedback from missions around the world about whether they think they're doing it already, whether they think they're doing an effective job, and how they do it so that we can share these best practices with each other. Stop doing stuff that doesn't work and leap onto the things that do. How do we get after women? How do we get after minority groups, whether it's by race or ethnicity or tribe or religion because they are around the world so we are trying to improve our foreign policy in just that way
2: wow you know um we've come to the end of our, our time here and i am <laughs> i'm all, always grateful when i wake up in the morning because considering the alternative um you know <laughs> the the other thing is i just never know what i'm going to uh, miss You know, by not not doing the day, not being not being able to participate. But rarely have I had days where I've actually learned 10 or 15 things from one person in one 30 minute period. And I think one of those times I was talking to a bum on the east side of New York. One time I was talking to uh, a tribal leader in West Africa. One of those times, you know, I was talking to my father frankly. And this is another one of those times is because you are so compelling when you talk about these key issues in your life and in our lives that we need to pay attention to. Bottom line, people need to listen to what you've said. And uh, you've said some amazing and important things here today. So thank you, Ambassador, for taking time to talk to us on this program.
0: Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And you've put me in excellent Excellent company. Thank you very much for be saying your dad because I know how I feel about the advice and counsel I got from my own. So, so thank you very much. I look forward to another conversation. A lot more to talk about, I
2: think. I do think so. I do think so. So as we go today, let me just ask you one last thing. Is there anything we haven't asked you about, I haven't asked you about that you think we need to talk about or address before we go?
0: I am fully confident that we are going to make sustained foundational change in this organization and meet the demands of the American people to do better. I am fully confident of that that makes me happy every morning.
2: <laughs> Everybody, that's Ambassador Gina Amber Crombie Stanley. And if you haven't heard of her, I'm doubting that you haven't. But in case you haven't, in case if there is a remote possibility you haven't, keep your eye on what she is the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for the State Department is doing and will do. And thank you again, Ambassador, for being here today.
1: Thank you, sir. My pleasure. You're listening to Colors. My
3: name is Robin Golden. I'm a black woman living in the DMV. And nine years ago, I got remarried to a white man from central Pennsylvania. I knew he was conservative when we began dating. I'm a Democrat. We debated a lot of the issues from time to time. However, in 2016, when he began favoring Donald Trump, things began to become very uncomfortable. To put it bluntly, there were four years of hell in our home. My husband loves me for sure. But I realized that he is a racist. Every conversation with him included whataboutisms. White people are tired of hearing about race. I don't treat people badly by their skin color. Black Lives Matter is a Marxist terrorist organization and part of violent Antifa. Talking about race makes race relations worse. And the list goes on how did I not see this? Did he change? Did I change? Also, one time we were briefly living in Pennsylvania. I was close to his parents. We talked often. Once 45 took office, that ceased. Their constant watching of Tucker Carlson, Fox and Friends, and listening to Rush Limbaugh pushed me away. I was an acceptable Negro to them because their son loved me, but they're racist. And as a result, no longer communicate. I do love my husband. We are still together. We live in Rockville. We try not to bring politics up, but I realize that he is racist, and I don't hold my tongue when I hear it coming out of his mouth. Um, there are many of us out here, so I see. Um, and like you said, sharing is important, mostly because it makes you know that you're not alone and that other families
2: are in a similar situation.
1: This is Colors. A dialogue on race in
2: America. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the Colors Podcast, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at colorspodcast.com. That's colors at colorspodcast.com. I'm Christopher Cruz. I'm white, 62, and I live in the D.C. area. Julie Pham. Vietnamese, American, born in Vietnam, living in Seattle. Malcolm Shirad. I am a Black American from South Florida.
0: Therese Coleman, Black woman,
2: Ashland, Virginia. I'm JJ Green, I'm Black, and this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. The Oprah Winfrey Network and the National Research Group send a message to American media.
3: First of all, number one, the Black woman exists and she matters and she has wants and she has needs and she's got a lot of buying power. So, you know, pay attention to these needs.
2: Cindy Smith is vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the National Research Group. They've done a groundbreaking study talking to Black women across the country. And here's what they want media to know.
3: They want to see complex portrayals of themselves on screens. That means get rid of the stereotypes and and seeing the the same old trope over and over again. They want to be seen as someone that is in power.
1: That's coming up in our next episode of Colors.
2: So as we go today, we want to say thank you to some people, Hillary Howard, Mike Chikaitis, Ron Pemberton, Joel Oxley, Gretchen Soren, Peggy Byer, Roz Whitaker-Heck, Ernie Green, Angeli Chong, Julie Pham, Jess Scheinfluke, Mortimeron, the Pawnee community, Native Americans everywhere. And for the music, we want to thank Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Offshane. And most of all, thank you for listening. And just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other.
1: You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast DC, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors,
2: a dialogue on race in America.